I'm Jerrica Kirkley, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer and Co-Founder of Plume. Um, Femtech to me is the opportunity to just creatively talk about solutions in healthcare. And I think solutions in healthcare, in particular for marginalized communities and um, the, the, broad, the broadest definition of, of femme communities, especially. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think it's an opportunity also to highlight individuals that are working in that environment and to, to help lift up the voices of others um, and really just add as much representation as we can to that process. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is sponsored by Afterglow, which is my new favorite wellness hack to have more orgasms. And when I need a little help getting in the mood, I go to XO Afterglow. I watched their film Lip Service this weekend, and it was hot. Afterglow is emerging porn and sexual wellness with their films, guided masturbations, how-tos, and more. Head to www.xoafterglow.com and use promo code FEMTECH for a two-month free trial to support ethical porn by women for women. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Jerrica Kirkley, the co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume. Dr. Jerrica is a trans woman, physician, and educator. She has been both a patient and provider of gender-affirming hormone therapy, which is commonly known as hormone replacement therapy, and has provided training across the country on gender-affirming care. She started Plume to radically increase access to gender-affirming services. Plume is the first health technology company dedicated to the transgender community to radically redefine the way healthcare is delivered and to ensure that every trans person in the U.S. has access to gender-affirming care at the convenience of their smartphone. Plume works via direct-to-consumer delivery of gender-affirming hormones for trans folks via mobile texting and a flat fee subscription regardless of their insurance or lack thereof. Throughout the interview, the use of the word trans includes transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming individuals. Dr. Jerrica was so fun to interview, and I learned a lot while speaking to her. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Dr. Jerrica. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. You look amazing, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I love your glasses and you're in a tank top. Aren't you in Colorado? I am. You know, uh, the weather's really funny out here and also my apartment. So it's actually snowing outside right now, but um, my, our apartment, like the heat just comes on for the season. Uh-huh. And the last couple of days have been kind of warm, like up into the fifties. So whenever that happens, because the heat, you can't shut it off. The whole apartment is like really hot, but I'm still kind of like in this cloud of warmth while I'm looking at snow outside. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. you look like you're ready for the beach. <laughs> and also, yeah, and I, and I love the beach and I love warm weather. So it's kind of like some, yeah, some, some wishful thinking as well. Oh my gosh. I went to Colorado one time and it was uh, last year on vacation and I had been living in Houston for eight years, which has a hundred percent humidity every day of the week of the year. And I went to Colorado and I had so many nosebleeds, so many, cause yes. my, my skin was just like, I was like a little snake. <laughs> like, so dry out here. I still, so like, I'm like, dry. lotion on all the time. Oh my God. All the lotion. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I am really excited to hear your story. We always kick off these interviews with learning about our guest because we can probably read some article about all your achievements and stuff. But, you know, I don't have a typical, you know, upbringing that would lead someone to think, oh, she's going to be a venture capitalist. I, you know, I, a, 
against the odds am where I am. And so we always love to hear people's stories. So why don't you kick it off by telling us where you're from, you know, growing up, where did you study? And then how did you end up here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, I'm Jerrica. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And um, I, uh, well, I guess just a little background. So I'm a, I'm a parent, I have a three-year-old mother, um, I'm a trans woman, um, I'm a physician and an educator, and I love um, teaching about, I think, all things within health, but especially gender-affirming care, which you know, we'll talk about. So I grew up in North Carolina, uh, which I understand is where, where you're located yes. now in my hometown. So, um, you know, and it's funny, I grew up in North Carolina, I grew up in Raleigh, and um, I think I was like constantly trying to find my ticket out for a long time, and I was mm -hmm. like, oh, like, I'll go to California for college. Oh, it didn't happen. Like, I'll go to California for medical school. It didn't happen, you know. So um, so I was in North Carolina for a long time. I went to college there, uh, went to medical school, um, and uh, finally did leave to go to residency. And so I did my medical residency in Colorado. I'm out here uh, in Denver. Um, and it was in residency where I first got into gender-affirming care on a clinical level. Um, so, uh, and helped kind of create some protocols and a curriculum around what we say like LGBTQ plus care comprehensively, but a big part of that was providing, for example, gender affirming hormone therapy and, and teaching residents and, and faculty how to do that. Um, and then from there, just kind of, I, I fell in love with it. It really um, just became this super powerful process, I think, to be a part of as a clinician, um, but also just like anybody, you know, on the trans journey and working with folks on on the gender journey um and so I, journey I, at that point were you already transitioned or were you know yeah you know so at that point I had not come out yet um okay. and so this was like all kind of like a building process and uh -huh. went through my own processing um and worked several years in primary care practice where I was doing gender affirming care and, and still teaching mm -hmm. on it before I even was able to kind of come out myself oh, because okay. of like social circumstances and everything. Yeah, so, yeah, of course. Um, but even before I went to medical school, you know, I think like what I, what really drew me to medicine was looking at that as a vehicle um, to, uh, you know, help lift up the voices of marginalized communities. And so mm -hmm. I've kind of always looked at those avenues as I've been in medical school and then into residency and and so like worked for the past five years in a community health center um and uh like a federally qualified health center and so um i think professionally that's just where my interests have always um been and then like on the gender affirming care pathway i really got into that in residency and i've been doing that in the scope of primary care for the last five years now um and then recently started uh, plume which is a company dedicated to gender affirming care Amazing. I heard uh, Sue Wern, our amazing Sue Wern. If you, if anyone knows Femtech Focus on the inside, she is literally my right hand woman. Can't do anything without her. She said that you started a, a company before Plume and actually pivoted to Plume. Is that true? Oh, um, so we it, it's technically the same company, but we we were under a different name uh -huh. and we we like went through, we rebranded oh. uh, and then we launched as Plume. So some people might know us as uh, Mariposa or Mariposa Health. Um, which was our initial name, but same, same company, same service. Okay. Um, Rebranded to, to a different name. Yeah. That is honestly quite common. You know, I have yeah. founders that are like, what do we call ourselves? I'm like, just pick a domain name. That's 10 bucks. Don't worry too much about it. You know, because once you get investors, they're probably going to tell you to change it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Plume, um, what is Plume? Yeah, so Plume um, is a gender affirming healthcare service. And so we're a virtual service and direct to consumer, um, as opposed to the sort of traditional brick and mortar system of healthcare where you have to, you know, find a clinic and make sure it aligns with your insurance. And so, so what that means is that you can just log into our website and get a consult with a clinician, so a physician, nurse practitioner, or physician assistant who has expert training, and many of whom are trans themselves. Um, in gender affirming care mm -hmm. and and then get prescriptions and have ongoing monitoring um, all just by logging onto a website and then keeping communication with your provider by texting with an app on your phone. Whoa, how long ago did you start this? Um, so we, I guess, officially launched as Plume in uh, June of this year, like May, June of, of yeah. 2020. Um, and, you know, the idea my co-founder Matthew and I had been really starting to talk about, I guess, February of 
2019 and um, started a pilot in August of 2019, just uh -huh. a very small level here in Denver. Um, and then we eventually got funding um, and started to build our team out. And, and then that's when we launched. Amazing. Are you funded by like angels or venture capital or grants? Um, yeah, angels and venture capital. Yeah, really? So have, oh my gosh. Yeah, yes. we, we, we closed on our seed round um, at the, uh, I guess, like right at the beginning in, in Q1 of this of this wow. year. Um, and so it was super exciting. We, you know, we had this pilot going and, and, you know, a big part of that was just like talking to the community, like talking to other trans folks, um, talking to clinicians and, uh, and our patients that we had at the time. And being, you know, I think cause we both felt it was really valuable and like strongly believe that this needed to exist in the world, mm -hmm. knowing that it's just, it can be very hard to access gender affirming care. Um, and, and, you know, we kept getting that feedback. And so we, we took that and, you know, turn it into a pitch and we wanted to get funding to be able to build this out on a wide scale. And that's what I've seen throughout all my career. There, there's amazing people doing gender affirming care and providing great healthcare, but it's, it's very isolated geographically yeah. and, and it just doesn't reach a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to build something that could be scaled across an entire country, um, you know, with, with expertly trained providers. Yeah. Well, I had a, a therapist in Houston and she was in the LGBT community very intensely and she's very knowledgeable. And I would tell her about Femtech Focus and because that's what I talk about in therapy, right? If you're a founder, you probably talk about your company in therapy yeah. and <laughs> tell her about Femtech Focus. And she'd say, um, what about the trans community? Will like investors invest in like trans health stuff? And I would tell her, I mean, if the market's big enough, I said, yeah. that's always the biggest key is like, if the market isn't worth more than a billion dollars, they're not going to invest. So I'm actually really curious. I know um, I usually don't go as like how I built this with my, <laughs> with my guests, but I'm really curious, how big is the trans health market? Is it over a billion dollars? Yeah. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. You know, <laughs> um, there. It, it's, it's, it's really funny. And I mean, it's, it's amazing, I think first and foremost that, you know, that we had, we landed funding, venture capital funding yeah. for a business, you know, started by trans people, like for trans people, right? Like even yes. just to say those words is um, pretty remarkable to me still. And, and, the, and the awesome thing is we're seeing more trans founders coming, you know, mm -hmm. coming to the, the venture capital world and getting funding. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at, let's just say like the most kind of basic estimates, which is from the Williams Institute, which released in 2016, um, and so at that time they said there was like 0.6% of the population estimated as trans, um, you know, which was uh, about 1.4 million people. Now, if you fast forward that to now, just with the current population, um, it's about 1.9 million people. Yeah. But we've also had other surveys come out that suggest that, you know, um, like generation Z, for example, is four times more likely to identify as trans and baby boomers, um, yeah. and that individuals between the ages of 20 to 35 um, are actually uh, like upwards of 10 to 12 percent actually identify as not cis, right? So anything outside of that gender, yeah. traditional gender binary, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that's like that's massive, <laughs> you know, 10 to 12 percent compared to 0.6 percent. So, you know, where does the truth lie? It'll probably evolve and change as yeah. people feel more comfortable in coming out and presenting, um, you know, coming to healthcare providers and things like that um, as we go along. But it, but the short story is that it's actually way more than two million people. Um, and so, and when you take a, you know, that population that's severely underserved and just doesn't have those access points. Um, then, then yeah, it's actually like a, a, you know, a pretty robust population. Wow. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to send this to my old therapist <laughs> this episode when it comes out, because that was something I'd say, you know, I mean, they could potentially be invested in, but venture capitalists just care about the market size, you know, and money. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's big enough. And, you know, it's really interesting. I wonder where the correlations are, if any, between like this rise in like, um, you know, questioning gender and what you want to be in the spectrum and the rise of like femtech. So focusing on women's health and wellness in innovation and medicine, because it's like, it's like, I don't know what it is, but in like the last decade or so, two decades, maybe people are starting to be like, 
hey, like this was made for a man. Like, has anyone ever thought about how this could be better for women if we changed this part of a seatbelt or we changed this, if we ever actually tested drugs on women before it hit the market, like in clinical trials, like, you know, I feel like there's like this opening of like awareness or something, you know, do you, what do you, Mm -hmm. do you feel that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I think there's a couple things that make that makes me think about, you know, one is what, what we believe strongly at Plume is this idea of identity resonant or identity based care, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like treating hypertension, for example, you know, if you're treating hypertension by the book, it's like, you know, same medications every time, same dose adjustments every time. Um, and that's sort of traditionally how the medical system has, uh, you know, treated people, right? Yeah. It's like uh, nothing else matters and everybody goes through the same, you know, prescriptive process. Uh, but in actuality, yeah, like we know that identity matters. We know there are many social determinants of health, um, which contribute to all of our health. And if you try to move people through a system that is not built for, because who was the medical system built for, right? It was white, you know, white cis, straight men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And gradually we've been kind of chipping away at that. But still, in many ways, that is the foundation which our healthcare system is built upon. And so, um, so yes, we have to change that for sure. And we have to think about like, how does this affect different people differently and can we actually have a different approach to the care? And so, you know, I think with the trans community, for example, um, right, there's so many things in the system which are inadequate in terms of even one, just acknowledging like who we are, right. And then like addressing us appropriately. Um, but also thinking about like, what are those kind of maybe physical, um, and health things that are unique to us as a community. Right. And, and understand there's a lot of variance there too. So, um, yeah, so I think, and that can definitely just transcend to like many and all communities, and especially those who are marginalized and have been left out of the system. Um, yeah. you know, and I think like the, also to even just like thinking, how do we think about, um, like them tech and like, what does that mean? Right. And <laughs> yeah. that, as I mentioned, there's, there's definitely like a, a strong identity piece to that and social determinants of health related to mm-hmm. identity, but there's also just the physical nature of it. Right. And like, you know, literally like body parts that are different from other people and uh-huh. been addressed adequately by, by the healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I think acknowledging that like there have been people who might not have those body parts, but still are impacted because of bias towards them people, right? And yep. like and how we engage in the system. And there are those folks who have maybe perhaps body parts that are traditionally thought of as, as femme or, or women or female, mm-hmm. um, but who don't hold those identities, who identify yep. as masculine and mask, man, male, non-binary, you know, gender queer, you name it. Um, but yet they still have the, you know, the necessity to like have appropriate care for, for that part of their body. Right. And so um, yeah, there's a lot of complexity to it. And I think that's why I think of it in a very like broad definition of, mm-hmm. of like, femtech and femhealth. Oh my gosh, this is deep. This is like, we, I feel like we need to write a thesis on this or something. Like this is very, meaningful <laughs> <laughs> resources, critically think about this. Um, well, I want to, I want to go through some, uh, terms that you've already been using, um, yeah. and that are like on Plume's website and stuff. And I want, I would just love for you to kind of define it for us and tell us like what that means and the significance. So let's start with, um, gender affirming care. You've said it a bunch of times. What is gender affirming care? Yeah, gender affirming care. You know, I think of gender affirming care as kind of the umbrella term, like a more broader um, take on just affirming care. I think you, let's say within a healthcare setting, but you can even extend that beyond a healthcare setting. Um, But what that means is really just compassionately and competently um, providing care for somebody. And so, right, addressing them appropriately, using their name and the pronouns that they go by. Um, not making assumptions about somebody because of the way they look or the way they sound. Um, so there's a lot of this very basic interpersonal connection that occurs and that is affirming outside of having a license, you know, or being able to write a prescription or doing some kind of action um, for that personal or professional setting. But when we get to the professional settings, there are things like gender affirming hormone therapy, like just like mm-hmm. our services are based around a plume. 
um, which are critical for a lot of trans folks. Not everybody um, obviously wants or desires to, to take hormones or have surgery, but it is very important for many people. Um, you know, surgery is another example, uh, but it could extend definitely beyond the healthcare arena. So like legal things, you know, changing your name, legally changing your name, legally changing your gender marker, um, finding a, a competent therapist, you know, uh, another great example. So, so yeah, so affirming care really is just, um, uh, you know, again, like a compassionately uh, acknowledging an individual in whatever that setting might be. And then there's, uh, there can be like specific um, cases within different industries. Mm-hmm. What is um, the chances of us like helping current MDs become more gender affirming? Um, or is it like a lost cause and we should just focus on med school and then like hope for future generations to be better? Because I never, I, I feel like MDs are so busy, like, and I don't know if this is on top of their list of priorities. Like, talk, is there any initiative around that? Um, there definitely is an initiative. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I've like devoted my life to. Yeah. Like literally like, you know, I mean, every day I'm training, you know, clinicians to take care of trans folks. Um, but even before I started plume that, that was, you know, I, and that's why I think eventually I started plume was because, um, you know, I, I've, work to train clinicians within like the healthcare setting I was working in. I've, I've taught and lectured um, at clinics that I was not a part of, private clinics, community health centers, academic institutions, medical schools, schools of pharmacy, you know, you name it. Um, and, and I think it's all critical. So, so it, you know, uh, it, it can be discouraging sometimes for sure. Um, now, I think they're like the clinician base just is changing, like evolving rapidly, right? Like, I mean, I think there's a lot of folks who really take this social justice approach to medicine, which is why I got into it in the first place, um, that I think are kind of in in our generations now and certainly a lot um, in older generations, but I think even more now. And so I think clinicians are much more receptive to it, certainly now compared to five, 10, 15, 20 plus years ago. Um, and I think ultimately, yes, it like has to come at the medical or at the, at the medical training level, right. Whether that's a medical school, nurse practitioner school, PA school, um, social work, you know, psychology, whatever it is, um, because that's the workforce. Now the, the downside, uh, or what's hard with that is a long play, you know, it's like, I mean, if I go in and give you know, training to medical students they're not even going to enter the workforce until like seven, at least seven years, right? I mean, that's just like, it doesn't even like make sense, but um, like if you compare to any other profession, but that's the case. And so seven years from now, I mean, that's like, that's a lot of time, right? I think especially as any marginalized person who is experiencing disparities and has like a lot of risk because of that. So that has to happen, but then what do we do in the meantime is the question, you know? So then it's like, okay, well, let's train our active clinicians and that's part of it. Um, But even with that, it's still hard to reach a lot of people because most clinicians are gonna gather towards large metropolitan areas. And especially those that tend to be perhaps more interested, you know, in gender affirming care and and different um, care for marginalized communities um, because that's where a lot of those clinics tend to be. So then you go a step further and it's like, all right, well, how do we take, you know, all those people that want to do this care, um, who have the experience and go ahead and provide it. And those that maybe don't have it, but are willing to learn and then offer that skill set to an entire country, you know? And so that's, that's how it can be. And so that's kind of like that next step of creating the access, um, leveraging a a widely distributed provider network mm-hmm. um, that can provide care under one roof. Yeah. So here's a question. Um, I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. I have a friend who recently got pregnant, was not intended. Uh, she made an appointment with her OB-GYN, said, hey, I, th- I think I'm pregnant. I missed my period. Um, this is not the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I have uh, the abortion pill? And the doctor said, I am allowed to sub- subscribe prescribe it to you technically, but the, um, group that I work in, like the clinic itself, um, Mm -hmm. apparently there was some doctors there that are like anti like OBGYNs that are anti-abortion. So that Mm -hmm. doctor, even though he was like, of course, like you are just like a responsible woman who's like trying to like just live her life and get this pill. Like I can't prescribe it to you. You have to go to Planned Parenthood. My question for you, because we could we could definitely talk about that. I have a lot of emotions about it. I have a lot of 
feelings. Um, and we do have abortion episodes, but my yeah. question for you is, is that also an issue in trans health where there's a, a trans individual goes to a clinic and like, there's some kind of like, we can't treat you here because somebody here doesn't believe in it or something. Does that exist too? It does, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there, you know, up to a third of trans people are actively discriminated against in a healthcare facility, mm-hmm. you know, which is, it's mind boggling to me, right? These are professionals who've like, you know, signed this oath to take care of people. Yeah. Um, and, and, and not just like, oh, I don't have the skills to do this, but right, active discrimination and prejudice. Yeah. Um, and those are two two things which are a big part of it, right? One, you have an inadequately trained workforce, but also just um, uh, rampant bigotry and discrimination. And so, so yeah, that happens a lot, unfortunately. I mean, we hear that a lot from our- That's not like workers. illegal? Not like what? That's not illegal to say, oh, like, I can't treat you? Well, you yeah, I mean, that's a great question, right? You know, with the HHS rollbacks that occurred, actually, you know, you could consider that legal now, right? So what they did is they said that um, from the Trump administration <clears throat> was that it now is legal to um, not provide care to a trans person, uh, whether that's insurance, co- health insurance coverage, or just clinical care because they're trans. It, it allowed for that, you know, and so so uh, hopefully those get those get turned back. But yeah, so yeah. I mean, even within our country, you that could be considered uh, legal. Now there are states which have protections against that, but not all states do. Yeah. Well, you let us know at Femtech Focus, if you're going to do a letter writing campaign, we will write letters like I'm all for making the government, you know, abide by the people they're supposed to be representing. Anyways, again, another episode I can see it's already. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you but uh, about, so like, here's all the doom and gloom. I always love to provide solutions. So what is a way that healthcare and digital health could be more inclusive? Like what are actions they could be taking? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think a lot of it just comes down to uh, education for one, right? I mean, first and foremost, I think a a willingness to just be um, cooperative with different people. I mean, cooperative isn't the right word. It's just like, yeah, be compassionate, like be open-minded, you know, just like, like stop making assumptions and just yeah. you know stop being bigoted I don't know <laughs> like there's just like some basic stuff that needs to happen but but you know I think even with well-intentioned folks you know like might be doing things that they don't realize are necessarily um like you know damaging and traumatizing to individuals yeah. um so doing a lot of self-education I think like bringing in which can look like a lot of different things but even just like having a uh, like a training day, you know, to talk about just kind of like, quote unquote, like gender 101 or trans 101, um, like at an all staff meeting, you know, in a clinical setting, for example, um, or whatever your business is. And I think just to have more context, right, to have more depth of understanding of the lived experience of an individual going through that every day, right? Like understanding that walking to your clinic, like being in your clinic to get gender affirming care does not start when the physician or the clinician or nurse practitioner, whoever walks in the room, it starts when they leave their door, right? And like have to walk through their apartment and then through their parking lot and like, you know, risk whatever people might be saying to them and getting misgendered along the way, uh, going through public transit, arriving to the door and then going through like five different people before they actually get in the room to talk about what they want to talk about that day. So, you know, so um, I think just having just, yeah, even a very basic understanding of what does it mean to be trans can go a long way. Um, and then, like I said, not assuming, you know, don't assume people's gender, don't assign people's gender, uh, don't, don't use pronouns that you don't know people. Well, I've never use seen and, like an intake form at a doctor's office that asked me my pronouns. Yeah. No, I've never seen that before. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's like seemingly such a simple thing, but can sometimes feel like such a big lift to have a clinic do, you know. Um, well, currently I'm super upset with Eventbrite because they, their like default is um, what is your gender? And it says male or female. Yeah. And um, I just, I, <laughs> I'm always like, why? And I get upset with Sue Wern and she's like, I promise it's not me. <laughs> she's like, it's Eventbrite's default. Yeah. Which I'm you know- like, haven't people emailed them about this? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, you know, what's amazing. I mean, like th- this is the thing, because like if 
we do say something about this, it does go a long way. Yeah. You know, we're, we're working to literally build systems at Plume that, that do this, right? That acknowledge people appropriately mm-hmm. um, with the technology, you know, and in doing so, because we work with like so many different technology companies um, along the way, uh, I mean, we've actually like influenced companies to change the way they do things, to change their intake forms, to change like, yeah. you know, uh, it, I mean, it, it really is amazing and stuff that I wouldn't have necessarily dreamed of being a result of starting this company. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, I think people do see that they see the power in it when you can really get behind and explain why it's important to do. Yeah. And then it kind of becomes contagious. And, you know, and these are the you know, big, big companies, corporations. Yeah, come on, Publicly, you know, you yeah, 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 no, like just time to put the right on here. <laughs> but, but yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, and I think that's kind of the very basic service level, individual service level. But of course, there's just, you know, your messaging to the community. Um, you know, what, what are your, if you're, depending on what your service is, right, are you kind of talking about it in very binary terms? Um, are you, um, you know, uh, what are other organizations you're aligning with? Um, you know, and the list goes on all the way up the rungs to advocacy and, and, and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a scientist and I'm actually a total nerd. Um, my dog's names are trypsin and fork, you know, an enzyme in a physics term. So, I mean, really nerdy. <laughs> I'm curious to talk a little bit about hormone replacement therapy. First, maybe just like a definition of it. And then I'd, I would love to dig in a little bit to the biology of it, because even I have some questions about like, how long do you have to be on these hormones? Like, how is it bad for your health? Like things like that. So first tell us about what is hormone replacement therapy? Yeah. So, and, and in fact, instead of saying hormone replacement therapy, what we, what we typically say is gender affirming hormone therapy. Oh, okay. and, and so like GAHT and, and the reason being is because hormone replacement therapy or HRT, even though it is a term that has been widely adopted, we'll say it looked by the trans community within gender affirming care work um, actually originates as being, it's like hormone treatment for traditionally cis folks, right? So yeah maybe going through menopause or um, uh, having like low testosterone later in life. And so, so literally replacing those hormones, whereas this is kind of more of the affirming process. We're not necessarily replacing anything, but, you know, kind of putting something there um, as it should be in the first place as felt by a lot of these individuals. So hormone affirming replacement therapy? Yeah. Gender yeah, affirming hormone gender, therapy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. And so what is that? I mean, so it's, uh, you know, the use of hormones, uh, just as it sounds, the use of hormones to affirm uh, one's gender. And um, and it goes beyond hormones too. Uh, hormones are a component of it, but there's also kind of adjuvant medications we use to supplement that process mm-hmm. uh, that can, for example, like maybe block the effects of undesired hormones while we're actually giving the desired hormones mm-hmm. um, and, and some medicines that are used to kind of counteract some of the, the, the side effects of hormones. And the two hormones mostly we're talking about is estrogen and testosterone. Yep. That's right. Okay. Because yeah. um, I, again, I would be, I am always surprised on the show when I'm like, oh, you know, like this. And they're like, actually, that's what the world thinks it's wrong. And <laughs> so I just want to make sure it is those two, those are the two hormones are most. <laughs> Those are the two main ones. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, you know, progesterone is another hormone that we use as well. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, and then, yeah, like I said, some kind of supplementary medications, but yeah. yeah. And at what age, like, are people allowed to start their gender affirming therapy um, with these hormones? Like, is there an age that they're allowed to start doing that or they have to wait to a certain age? And like, what are the consequences of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, so there's several guidelines that are out there. Uh, UCSF Center of Excellence for Transgender Health has um, kind of a pretty comprehensive set of guidelines. WPATH, or the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, um, was one of the the first, um, I guess, institution to create guidelines. First in 1979, and there's the Endocrine Society as well. So WPATH for a long time had been the ones kind of setting the stage for what like like you're talking about like what is an appropriate age to start and that kind of thing um for a long time they had suggested 16 years old to start hormones specifically so uh not puberty blockers right that's a different thing which which i'll I'll explain 
Um, and, but, you know, in practice, um, a lot of folks are starting as early as 14 years old, um, just depending on the specific scenario, you know, which can depend on access to puberty blockers, for example, they can be really hard to get in many cases, they can be very expensive. Um, also, there just could be a really excessive amount of dysphoria and um, uh, from not being able to start hormones. You can imagine, like, even if you're, if you are lucky, you get access to puberty blockers, so you've halted your puberty, but now you're like stuck in like no puberty land. Yeah. All of your peers around you are developing, right? So, so that can be challenging too. Um, but puberty blockers are completely reversible. So those are basically a medication that we've used for many, many, many years um, in kids to stop puberty. Uh, for uh, another use that it's used for is for what we call precocious puberty, when puberty is starting like very early and, and developing fast. Um, for, uh, for cis folks who we want to like mm -hmm. kind of pause that for a little bit, um, but works well for trans folks as well, for the same reason that this is, this is an undesired puberty in this case. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so you can think of just the massive amount of trauma that one would go through, like, you know, having to go through that. Um, so if we can have an opportunity to stop that process, you know, allow that adolescent to, um, continue processing as needed, um, and then start hormones when, and if it's appropriate for that individual, yeah. as they decide. Yeah. And what, if they change their mind is it's not like you, if you start doing, you know, taking testosterone or estrogen blockers, like you can't ever go back. Right. That's not the case. Yeah. With puberty blockers, um, they're completely reversible. So if you were to stop those, then the person would just start going through puberty uh -huh. as yeah. their kind of hormones and body parts, um, would, uh, would dictate. And, um, now as far as hormones like testosterone or estrogen, they do have some irreversible changes. We kind of consider every quote unquote, everything to be, um, irreversible, uh -huh. but there, there are some things that are probably more longstanding or irreversible than others. So, so yeah, so I think like that is certainly something to keep in mind and to acknowledge. Um, and, and also, um, you know, like the kind of, I think of it as like a decision to pursue hormones or not, right? Like, which is a very complicated decision. And it's, a, it's not necessarily, it's not a reflection necessarily at all of one's identity, whether the, the choice to, to take hormones or not take hormones, right? But um, many, many decisions influence that or many factors influence that decision, um, you know, with, unfortunately, with being so much stigma and pressure around that, um, you know, uh, there, there could be a moment where somebody decides maybe not to continue hormone therapy, but of course, like doesn't alter just intrinsically who, who that individual yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, um, I think I remember this from our interview with Claire that there are some health consequences if you, um, like abruptly stop using your hormones. Um, and we were talking about this in terms of access to healthcare and health mm -hmm. insurance. Right. So, it, um, what are some of those consequences? Is that true? Yeah, there definitely are, are um, effects from that. I mean, I wouldn't say anything, well, let's just say like that's like physically or medically life-threatening, but the problem is um, it definitely can be very uncomfortable. So for example, if somebody were taking estrogen and stopped it all of a sudden, you're basically kind of throwing somebody into a menopause, right? So you just like suddenly have like no estrogen in your body. And so you can have hot flashes and, you know, just uh, mood changes and feeling very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, if something were to suddenly stop taking testosterone, uh, similarly can get a lot of mood changes that can come with that. Um, but also, for example, testosterone for many people is important um, for, for stopping periods or causing amenorrhea, as we say. Um, so if suddenly you then started to bleed again, like that could be incredibly dysphoric, right? Um, so I think while those medical things, again, are not life-threatening themselves, but the, the big problem comes into play, like what is the psychological damage of that? Like, you know, losing access to, to hormones, you know, losing access to that affirmation and having these like physical processes while not life-threatening can be very discomforting and then induce, you know, more feelings of anxiety and depression. That kind of thing. Wow. This is incredible. You are doing such important work. Um, what are some of your goals for Plume in the future? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, when we think of ourselves at Plume, we, we think of ourselves as a, again, a broadly like gender affirming care company. And we've started with hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. We, we've you know, definitely recognized that as a major access gap 
um, for the trans community. Um, but beyond that, again, there are many important pieces of that gender affirmation journey. Um, you know, it could look like other prescription services that are that are helpful. Um, I think like emotional support obviously is, is huge, right? Not to say like you have to have a therapist to start, you know, hormones and all that kind of stuff, which used to be the case and you had to have a letter. Like oh. definitely, we, yeah, we don't, we don't advocate for that. And we use fully informed consent to, to start, meaning that the, you know, the person decides and it's not up, not up to us to decide. Um, but that being said, obviously any big life change, any, you know, transition process, um, it can be helpful to have emotional support. So I think we're really looking into now, what does that mean? You know, it, it, is there something beyond like traditional one-on-one -on -one therapist um, that can provide that emotional support on a very wide scale? Um, you know, working around finding solutions to help with legal processes, you know, just like, again, changing your gender marker, your name or your, uh, whether on whatever document, passport, license, birth certificate, it differs in every state. And there's like <laughs> yeah. some, some good resources out there, um, you know, like Solace, for example, is a transfounded company that helps with that process. And I think like, you know, also looking at how do we, how do we do that, um, you know, on a more individual level as well. And yeah. so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of ways, but we, you know, I think we see ourselves kind of finding every way possible to really just comprehensively support that gender affirmation journey. I love it. And you actually brought up something that I forgot to ask. And I wanted to ask real quick, which is um, you offer a letter writing service. What, what is oh. that? Yeah, so um, for those that have already signed up for the, the membership and are getting hormone therapy, um, we provide letters of support for surgery because that's oftentimes needed. Even though you don't need letters for hormone therapy, there is still a requirement um, with insurance companies and surgeons that you have to have a letter of support from a medical provider. Um, oftentimes, and actually, really? yeah, from a therapist as well. So we'll provide the medical letter um, and also sure. can provide letters for um, gender marker and, and legal name change as is required in some states. Ooh, and it's just you as a MD saying like, I give my blessings to this happening. Like, what are you yeah, saying? Yeah. It sounds as ridiculous as you just made it. Thank you. Like, I didn't even have to say anything. Like, I just, I love that I can explain this to somebody. There's like, you have to like, get what? Thank you. Yes. Hopefully it goes away. I hope okay. it's a service that Plume like never has to provide in the future. Um, but as it stands now, wow. yes. Yeah. You actually have to get a letter from a clinician in some cases, specifically a physician, just to say like the, the person has quote unquote undergone treatment and like is now this gender, you know, it, it, it's, it's, wow. it's horrible, it's, archaic language. Yeah, like not reflective you have a bad day and like show yeah. up to a surgeon and say like, yeah, I'm, you know, I feel like this today. And like, that's yeah. not probably a problem that exists. No, 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 it is not. It is not by any means. And so, so it is a little bit of like, you know, just kind of playing the system and, and, yeah. you know, yeah. checking the boxes and, and, you know, I think that's a big part of it, right. Is like, uh, from an affirmation piece, like you could have one clinic that can provide the letter, but can also do it in a really non-affirming way, right? Where maybe you have this like extensive interview and you're asking all these questions and you're like, but how do you know? You know, like, which is just like very inappropriate stuff versus like someone who's trans, just like, we get it, right? It's like, right, you need this letter. Like, we're going to provide you this letter. We're going to, you know, of course, check for medical things, make sure you're, you're safe to you know, have surgery and that kind of thing and give recommendations. But but like, it's not our job, again, to decide like who's trans and how trans you are. Nobody <laughs> trans. Um, and, and so it is like, it is, you know, it, it's sad, but, it's, but it is silly that these yeah. things exist. And so, so hopefully that the system evolves. And interestingly, WPATH is about to put out a new guideline for the first time since 2011. Um, so we'll see. I don't, I don't know, you know, maybe there will be some language that softens that requirement, but I think it'll, it'll take some time. Wow, I had no idea. All of the different barriers to getting the healthcare you need, right? Yeah, like yeah. so hard. Um, all right. So I've had such a fun time with you. I really would love to be your friend in real life. This has been <laughs> so awesome. I'm so inspired. We have two last questions that our listeners love. The first one is if someone wanted to start a femtech company, what's an area in health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Mm. Yeah, um, you could probably pick a lot of things. Um, I think uh, taking that kind of like identity lens and it could 
probably be like literally any, you know, healthcare piece, but maybe something that's more specific. Um, you know, I think certainly, right, a lot of work to do in, in kind of the trans care environment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you mentioned one that was great, um, family planning access and abortion mm -hmm. care access, right? Yes. Very, very underserved in terms of that. Um, in fact, there's like a really awesome company. I don't know if you know them, uh, Hey Jane. Hey uh, Jane! Yes, yes, yes. I've, I was a judge in a pitch competition that she was in and I was like, hell yes. Like, oh, nice. Yeah. Getting, so. getting the pill, so inconvenient. So, yes. so, so inconvenient. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, like that's, you know, we're starting to see stuff there. I think like another one, for example, um, yeah, you know, black pregnant folks, right? We know experience significant disparities compared to non-black and especially white pregnant folks. Um, so I think there's a lot that can be done in that whole arena of, uh, you know, obstetric care um, uh, and, and kind of pre and post as well. Um, and which again, can largely be leveraged by technology, I think in many ways and providing that access and providing that sort of affirming identity resident care um, that a lot of clinics are lacking. Um, so I think those are, those are two big ones I've, I've definitely um, seen recently, but, oh, you know, another one, uh, for example, cancer screenings, right? So, um, so cervical cancer screening, again, something that affects all people with that body part, yep. um, regardless of identity. And um, interestingly, you know, the, the guidelines are changing and our technology is changing where we can more easily and less invasively um, test for that, uh, which is like, you know, really important to do, but of course, traditionally has just been a very uncomfortable examine process for anybody right you know and um and so that's uh you know a big one and i think for of course again all individuals who have to go through that but but i think especially like um, for a lot of trans folks who who experience significant dysphoria around even like acknowledging some of those you know yeah. those exams and body parts yeah. so um yeah i'd love to see like innovation in that space as well there was a, a meme that's been going around and it was like some man had tweeted like that COVID test was the most invasive and uncomfortable test ever. Oh and like God. a woman, a woman replied, it was like, try a pap smear, bro. Yeah, I know. Like so true. So true. Uh, yeah. It's just again, like <laughs> you just had like an ounce of like <laughs> the lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Hmm. Um, you know, I think it's honestly, it's just like more moments like this, right? It's like, I think creating the spaces to, um, to yeah, have these creative conversations, like generate ideas, um, not be afraid to try them too. And I, and I think like, there are, of course, just some hard, cold truths, right? I mean, you brought it up before. We need funding, you know, like we need investors, we need governments to actually um, invest in these issues. And so, so I think it's definitely a combination of, of creating the spaces to, to collaborate and ideate, but then also having the resources available to act on those ideas. Do you think that we're going to get some more policies and government that may help the trans community based on some trans people getting elected recently? Yeah, I think I, I do. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, you know, I mean, Biden, right? I mean, like the first president ever to actually like say the word transgender in a good way, um, you know, in, in a presidential address. And so, um, and, and knowing, and, and it is known that he actually has one of the most pro comprehensive LGBTQ plus platforms like ever. Um, so I think, and, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of candidates, right. Who, who are trans, who are queer, who've been elected. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, especially over the next four years, there's, there's a lot of hope for, um, for some, I think, significant change in policy and, you know, even for things like, uh, Medicaid expansion, right. So, yeah. Like that could go up significantly, which which has impact many ways in, in healthcare, um, but but especially for trans folks. Yeah. Definitely. So listeners, if you are a poli-sci major, if you are a journalist major, you're like, I'm not an innovator, I'm not a coder, I hate pitching, don't ever make me present. 
you could go into politics because we need you. Uh, because the more like uteruses and different identifying folks that are in Congress, they're gonna vote for Medicare to cover certain things. They're gonna, they, we just uh, uh, spoke with um, the president of Fibroid Foundation and she got a bill uh, passed through Congress for fibroids. And it was like passed because all the women were like, uh, yeah, one in three women have fibroids and they're the worst please pass this, you know, and it was like $30 million a year for five years for fibroid research, you know, but like, if you don't have the uteruses in there, the things that affect your uteri are like not common sense. Right. So. Yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah, it's so true. You know, representation uh, in all different ways matters and that's, yeah, right. Moving that way, but yeah, we got a lot more work to do. You are amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Jerrica Kirkley, the co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume. Right after our interview, I saw a tweet that said, This morning, my gynecologist introduced herself by telling me her pronouns and asking me mine, and when getting my medical history, asked if I had sex with sperm-producing partners. This is a future liberals want. I sent a screenshot of this tweet to Dr. Jerrica and was like, oh my gosh, this is what we just talked about. This is femtech, and it's the shift in healthcare that we need and we want. People often live in areas where there are not any competent or even welcoming medical providers. Even when they do live in areas with competent providers, they often face high prices if their insurance doesn't align or... There are long waiting lists just to be seen. These patients face discrimination, misgendering, and misnaming by staff in the clinic and have to walk into a space that is not only unaccommodating, but can be dangerous. We at Femtech Focus are so impressed with the work Dr. Jerrica is doing and what services Plume is providing. Alrighty, Fem fans, we have a bunch of exciting things we just launched. We now have an official Femtech book club, an account on Clubhouse, a new paid membership program, and fundraise consulting services. You can access all of these programs through our virtual network at femtechfocus.org. While there, you can also register for upcoming events, such as our listening parties that happen on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. Next one, February 8th, we'll be listening to my interview with the founder of Lioness, the first smart sex toy for women. Next week, we also have our next Femtech Fundamentals workshop, which will be on fundraise strategy. I'll be giving you an outline and procedure of how to successfully fundraise. You are not going to want to miss that. Again, you can access these events, clubs, and services at femtechfocus.org. While there, subscribe to our newsletter and consider donating to Femtech Focus because we are a nonprofit and rely on your generous donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.